So the randomness is what allows the colony to explore alternate ways of organizing as the environment changes. All the creative dynamism of life, of adaptation, comes from this low-level randomness. Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer on This Is 8CD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm the founder of This Is 8CD. I'm a designer, educator, design coach and podcaster based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now our goal here is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. Earlier this year, I read an article by one of my heroes, The Edge of U2, in The Guardian. The first item in his list of cultural highlights was the book by today's podcast guest, Neil Theus. Like me, The Edge managed to get an early copy of the book from Neil's awesome publicist, shout out to Nicole Dewey in New York, and he too joined the fan club for Notes on Complexity, the book that we are going to be discussing in detail in this episode. Now, I've become captivated about many of the leading authors on complexity and was thrilled when Neil agreed to record at me his first from within the design world. Now, I've been researching complexity for seven months ahead of my keynote at UX Scotland and unpacking what we can take away from decades of research by leaders in the field. How can we apply this level of thinking into our day-to-day work as change makers? This conversation is one that I've looked back on and cherished, but I'll also cringe at times as I ask some pretty naive questions. My goal here is with many of the podcasts is sometimes to ask those questions that hopefully can open up channels for the many. So as you can probably tell by this stage i'm not afraid of asking for the sake of clarity now if you can get your hands on this book there's a link in the show notes it's stunning and it's carefully created and really opened my mind to new worlds that i'm excited to continue to explore now i work in these episodes as a labor of love And I love sharing the content and the work of others. And I know many of you enjoy it too, as I see all the wonderful reviews on Apple and Spotify. But if you want to help me and support This Is Hate CD, maybe you might consider by becoming a patron. It's just under two euros per month. And my goal with having this model is to meet the costs to produce everything. And we're still miles away from doing so. So check out more on thisishatecd.com, where we have now also launched Change Space, a private community for change makers to connect monthly, talk about all things that are working in our industry and not working, come together and form a network where we can make a positive impact on the world. Anyway, let's jump into Neil's episode. It is awesome. Neil Thais, I am literally buzzing to have you on the podcast. Um, I am a huge fan after reading the majority of Notes on Complexity, the book that has literally blown my mind and I've been carrying it around with me to various events, pulling it out and showing people the this incredible this incredible bulk of work. But um, for maybe for our listeners who aren't aware of who you are and what you do, how would you describe what you do and um, where are you currently based? Um, I'm based in New York City. Uh <laughs> it's hard to a get it slight. all down. Yeah, yeah. So my my day job is I'm a professor of pathology um, at NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York. I have a clinical practice uh, which involves most of my daytime um, looking at diagnostic biopsies. I focus pretty much on the liver, um, though GI biopsies, the whole gastrointestinal tract, um, are sort of bread and butter too. 
And I work with the liver transplant team. Uh, a lot of my academic work involves liver disease, liver pathology, um, and pretty much um, human-centered <laughs> uh, liver research because I have access to human tissues. I don't have to do mice or rats um, because wow. my clinical practice gives me the human tissues to look at. So, um, and in that world, uh, I'm, I guess, most particularly known for uh, helping to develop ideas of how liver cancer happens in humans. It's that work mm. is sort of the basis for now all our diagnostic imaging for screening for liver cancer. So uh, that would have been enough. I'm really proud of that. Um, yeah. Liver stem cells, and that got me into adult stem cells in general and adult stem cell plasticity around the turn of the millennium. Uh, that was the first work I did that went truly viral. And um, it was that mm. that led me to complexity theory. Uh, an artist I was collaborating with um, named Jane Prophet. I talk about her in the uh, early the part yeah. of the book because without her, I'd have no idea about this. I mean, meeting mm. her was was the the big moment. And um, when I was, she knew about complexity theory because it applied to some, um, an art project she did that turned out to be artificial life called Technosphere. Mm -hmm. And when I was describing to her what my work was, uh, she said, she, she noted that the way I talked about cells and stem cells moving around the body was similar to the way the complexity people talked about ants and how they mm -hmm. self-organize. And so that was the real beginning of this adventure. Um, then, uh, so I did that for a while. Um, the next big viral thing, uh, a few years ago, there was a big fuss and bother over um, the interstitium being a new human organ. That was my work too. And right. um, so I'm doing a lot of work following up on that. Um, what we call it was very controversial, but the fact of it that we've discovered a fluid communication network through all the connective tissue of the body that's four times the fluid volume of the cardiovascular system, um, that's real. And so wow. we're working so, on that. <laughs> so and then I wrote this book. <laughs> you wrote this book on top of it, which I was about to say, yeah. and you, you have been known to sleep occasionally. Um, mm -hmm. when you add all those things into your life, it's, it's yes. an optional because it's, it sounds like you've been extremely busy for a very long time. Yes. I um, <laughs> I want to give you a little bit of background. Okay. So a little bit of background. I saw your book included with as many people who know in this podcast, I'm a huge U2 fan. Edge mentioned it. I think it was in the times of the guardian. The guardian. Uh, yeah. And I, it was the guardian. Okay. I was mm -hmm. really, really excited to to see that because I know he's into an awful lot of similar stuff than I myself am into. And I'm currently writing a keynote for UX Scotland in June about embracing the complexity mindset within design. Now, in my research for that, I started to explore um, starlings and ant colonies, mm -hmm. okay, in terms of the self-organization nature of those things. And with murmurations, I'm, I'm still blown away. I live near a, an area where there's regular enough murmurations. Um, the level of beauty first of all, from those starlings and even ant colonies as well. Mm -hmm. But the ability to adapt and respond to constant change is still kind of like, how are they doing this? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm challenged by humans seeming inability to deliver such true ability okay, or agility, yeah. um, especially in the face of the greatest problem of our time, climate change. 
So I want to talk to you a little bit more around um, that whole kind of understanding, my understanding of ant colonies and starlings and self-organization and so forth. But maybe to get us started, because I look to you as being an expert in this field and I am very much a novice when it comes to it, but how would you describe complexity theory? So I've been <laughs> wrestling with this for a couple of years with a book on complexity. It's like, so what is complexity? Um, how do you, how do you write an elevator pitch for this book? We're still struggling, but so complexity theory um, is a, a theory that derives from mathematics and computer science. Um, I talk about it in the book as the one of the three pillars of contemporary science, quantum physics and relativity being um, the other two. Hmm. And those two are notable in that they're describing the most infinitesimal on the one hand and the most vast on the other, and they're profoundly non-intuitive. Um, whereas complexity theory sort of describes, not sort of, complexity theory describes how things come to be in between those extremes. And so that's mm. in part, the first major part of the book, um, first two parts of the book are all about that. And uh, people, by and large, you know, complexity theory isn't that well known. It hasn't entered the popular imagination as much as, for example, chaos theory has. And many people have heard of chaos um, and or fractals, the geometry that helps define chaotic systems. Um, complexity is what came next. It was the mm. next iteration. And um, it started appearing in the 1970s with a computer game called The Game of Life. The game of Life, yeah. Yeah, that John Conway designed. And it was first reported publicly in Scientific American. And I was, I think, 11 years old. And I remember seeing it in right. my public library because I was that kind of kid, <laughs> you know, Ooh, yeah, yeah. new issue of Scientific American. Um, <laughs> oh, computer game. That's cool. And, um, and what people seized on the game of life as, as having actual quite a depth of meaning, um, and lots of different researchers began exploring it. And what, um, and basically, you know, it's squares that turn on and off depending from, from turn to turn, moment to moment, depending on what other squares, what other neighbors are turned on or off. So you mentioned uh, the rule of seven before we started recording mm -hmm. for starlings, that starlings are only paying attention to the seven starlings nearby. It's all exactly, very local. Yeah. So the game of life, what happens to each cell just depends on its exact neighbors. In this case, there are eight of them. Um, but it turns out that um, depending on what pattern you start with of squares mm -hmm. that are alive versus dead, um, all sorts of different patterns start to arise. And some of those are ordered patterns. Well, some of them just are self-limited and die very quickly. They just, mm -hmm. they don't self-sustain. But when some do self-sustain, um, some of them just become a solid object. Like if you have a three by three box grid of alive cells, it just stays that way. It can't change. Um, or if you have a, a bar, a horizontal bar of three cells that are alive, the next turn it becomes a vertical bar 
centered the same. And then it goes back to the horizontal bar and it just blinks back and forth. So these are very ordered outcomes. And then there are outcomes that are just kind of freewheeling and crazy and turn out to be mathematically uh, chaotic systems. So chaos is what describes how whirlpools form or how we model weather now. Um, the famous uh, a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil becomes a tornado, generates a tornado in Texas. Um and if it flaps its wings exactly the same way, it will always cause exactly the same tornado. So it's predictably predictable. Um, but chaotic systems um, are not like, you know, simple geometries and physics equations um, where the parts sort of equal the whole. Um, mm. In chaos, you get a sense of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, but it's always utterly predictable. Chris Langton and yeah. David Packard uh, were playing around with the game of life uh, independently, um, though they were aware of each other. And what they discovered is that mathematically within the realm, in there's a narrow realm mathematically between the chaotic displays of the game of mm -hmm. life and these perfectly ordered displays. There was something else going on, and this turned out to be complexity. And so there's this famous phrase coined by David Packard that complexity is life at the edge of chaos. And they said life because it had all the features of living systems. And the concepts of artificial life, Chris Langton began that, began as this study of this region. Okay. And like chaos, the, um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, but unlike chaos, there's an inherent unpredictability in it. And when you look at the patterns that emerge, I reproduce one of them, a static image from one mm. in the book. They look biological. You just get flowers and fronds. And um, it turns out this is an information-rich zone of how the universe organizes itself. And uh, the game of life turned out to be an early model of... Um, what is order in the universe? What are the possibilities? And between order and chaos lies this zone of complexity. That's where information, um, this zone becomes information rich. This is where a, the universal Turing machine is. This zone is actually a universal Turing machine, if you're familiar with Alan mm. Turing's work. And, um, and what they came to realize over since then is that the principles that govern this zone, which are very, very simple um, and limited in number, um, are what describe life, um, all living mm. things, how life arises, how life adapts, um, what structures life gives rise to. So murmurations of starlings, colonies of ants, human neighborhoods, cities, economies, cultures, civilizations, mm. the entire ecosystem of the planet. And by extension, uh, this is one of the main themes of the book. This is partly why I wrote the book, is it turns out you can describe the entire universe as a complex system. And the implications of that okay. um, are profound. <laughs> Does that help? So is would it be fair to say that, that life is a cross-section of the chaos theory and complexity theory, or is that too simplified? That's too simplified. Um, life is what happens at the edge of chaos um, complexity the, is okay. at that so the grid edge. Zone. Yeah, yeah. 
the okay. edge. Yeah. There was a bit in the yeah, the edge. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> well, um, there was a bit in the book where you mentioned about the evolution from the womb to the baby and how we we're kind of we're bounded by that in in the early parts of our lives where we're, we we can't tell the difference between I think it was the wholeness and then the separation it happens maybe around 18 months in terms of the life of a baby is that ever a case where it can return even in in later life or is that it it's founded it's no, sure, set sure. um you know we we get conditioned by our training um by our genetic uh um endowment yeah um to turn that mm. off um and our our current culture works very hard very hard to keep us in that zone of separation i mean with, with the amount of information being bombarding us from outside yeah but um but then we have these technologies f to reverse that um contemplative practices mostly derived from spiritual traditions um or people who live in a shamanic um, state of, of interaction with nature that's that's unmediated by machines and control, et cetera. There are still, you know, people in the world who, who live that way. And then the the trick is to have the flexibility to move between those views. Um, you know, you, mm. my mom in her later years entered a, a bliss state with probably some minor strokes that robbed her of her short-term memory. Um, she was really mm. sweet. To, she kind of became a stoner <laughs> in affect, and um, which I'd always wondered what would that be like. Well, now I knew. Um, but she, <laughs> but she was really in a, in a bliss bubble for nearly a decade, where she just felt herself to be part of everything um, in a continual state. But being in that state meant she couldn't take care of herself. So we had to have 24-hour home care. And it was my privilege to be able to support her in that. So the goal isn't to surrender this relationship with the world of the relative, as we say in Buddhism, where you're there and I'm here. But it's to develop the flexibility to return to that perspective where there is no separation when where we are all seamless parts of a seamless universe um, mm. and then come back what do you do with that when you come back into this world of separation um, so one of the the points of the book by the end of the book is that we have these techniques they're available to all of us um, they can help us cultivate a view complexity tells us the way everything is structured we now know a lot about how everything is structured and how it happens and how the world is creative and adaptive and alive and conscious. Um, but the book is only concepts. This isn't going to change anybody's yeah. life unless they then are inspired by that to pursue this other kind of view. So when we look at, um, like the people listening here, mostly in the worlds of service design or human centered design, strategic functions within businesses and stuff um when we talk about complexity and complexity theory and when we have practitioners entering organizations that are ultimately complex systems um and they try to inform a better outcome for the people that 
you know, are the byproducts of what they create within those organizations and those systems. They're often met with resistance and they need to foster resilience to be able to, to deliver those outcomes that they're trying to achieve. Is it complicated or is it complex when you enter those systems? Um, it's both. <laughs> um, both. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I wonder, one, one of my ambitions for getting this material into the popular culture is that someone, mm. not me, someone comes up with a way to introduce this to the educational curriculum at an yeah. early level. I mean, you can do the game of life in third grade and start talking yeah. about these things. I gave, um, this book derives, derives from 20 years of talks I've been giving on this topic, which sure. started off. The first talk was actually to my Zen Buddhist group because they're a group of incredibly fiercely smart people. And I also felt safe. And, um, but after yeah. that, my audience for, uh, several years was primarily scientists, stem cell biologists, MDs, uh, people working in healthcare, um, uh, cell biologists, molecular biologists. And then I started giving it to Zen groups and yoga students. And even uh, my nephew, when he was in fifth grade, asked me to come speak to his class about it. And the teachers, there were two fifth grade classes in his school and um, the teachers joined them together in the last period of the day. I think there was about 40 or 50 kids. And um, the kids were so excited and had so many questions. And I had not changed a word of the talk. I did not need to dumb this down. It was just, it's that simple. Uh, the teachers wound up calling all the parents and holding the school buses for an hour because they didn't want to interrupt. So, um, wow. I, yeah. So I feel like if, if people grew up with these ideas, number one, then when you entered a community to talk about design, you wouldn't have to introduce them to this new stuff um, because it would already, mm. already be part of how they saw the world. So that's a long-term thing. But um, when, you, when you come into an organization, you know, the, the, I talk about these easy principles. There are four rules that make us, why starlings form murmurations, why ants form mm. colonies, why humans do what they do. They're all for following four basic rules. Number one is that you need a certain number to become no complex. Matter, yeah. So three ants don't make a colony. Seven starlings don't make a murmuration. Um, but if you have enough, um, then all the things come into play. And the more you have, the more complex. The greater the number, the, the greater the diversity within the system the more creativity, the more adapt adaptive potential that the entire system has. So mm -hmm. single cell organisms are not as complex as multicellular organisms. Um, a, a village is not a city, is not a megalopolis. But the same yeah. principles apply regardless of size. The only difference is how much complexity do you get? And by that, I mean how much creative potential, adaptive potential. Um, so that's one. Can I just um, on that point, can I just, yeah. cause I'm going to hang on that one for a little bit more. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to read out a bit of the prose from the book on that, because sure. there's a few questions I want to talk about self-organization and how it, uh, at a certain number it kind of shifts. 
So as you mentioned, there is four rules. Number, rule number one, there must be sufficient number of interacting parts to form a complex system. The standard mail order ant farm has 25 or so ants, all hard at work digging tunnels, creating food lines and establishing a cemetery for ants that die. These behaviors are examples of emergent phenomena. But once you have just a handful of ants left, there is no self-organization and emergent properties dissolve. No food lines, no cooperative tunnel building and dead ants stay where they die. On the other hand, the more individuals there are in the system, the greater level of complexity. A colony of 200 ants is not as complex as one with 2,000 ants and one with 20,000 ants is still more complex. A village is not a city, is not a megalopolis, as you'd say. So um, in that point, the self-organization piece, you could have an organization as big as some of the big consultancies where there's 600, 700,000. And we don't see that in humans where the self-organization and the ability to self-organize, sorry, Mm -hmm. my, my brain is going quicker than my mouth. The ability to self-organize is somewhat depleted. Um, what's causing um, that? Well, uh, so the other rules, um, the because other rules. it takes all. <laughs> yeah, the other rules it takes all four. So, um, uh, we have a really good current example in the banking system. So, uh, rule number two is that there have to be negative feedback loops in the system that predominate over okay. positive feedback loops. And by negative and positive, I don't mean good and bad. A negative uh, uh, feedback loop is you have a space heater in a room and uh, if the temperature of the room uh, goes down, it gets to a certain level of too cold that you've set, then the space heater turns on, the room warms up until it gets to the right temperature and the space heater turns off. So negative feedback loops always keep living systems oscillating within uh, what we call a homeostatic realm homeostasis being sort of the healthy realm. And, and, and this shows you right off the bat one thing that we sort of intuit and, uh, easily, um, but we can state it, that living things are never static. The only things that are static are dead. Um, hmm. Living things are always oscillating. Um, now, positive feedback loops is, let's say, you get um, a space heater that the warmer the room gets, the higher it turns on. So it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. You can have these in a, uh, in a complex system. Um, for example, when we get a fever, that's exactly what happens. Uh, you have a positive feedback loop driving up the temperature. But then we have negative feedback loops once you've eliminated the infection to bring the fever back down to normal and restore things to homeostasis. So there's always a balance and negative feedback loops have to predominate. I mentioned the banking system because we have all these you know, collapsing banks again. Yeah. And we've seen this before. And, um, and these are vast scale, you know, how many people are involved in a banking system? Uh, millions of people, everybody yeah. is involved in the banking systems. So the first time we had a huge collapse um, was the Great Depression, and they realized that there was unbridled speculation and greed, consider that a positive feedback loop. Um, And when you get an overabundance of feedback loops, you can get self-emergent self-organization, but instead of being creative and adaptive, it becomes energy expending and self-limited. So think of a tornado, a hurricane can be thought of that way, cancer is something we've modeled in this way. So a bank, an economy, same thing. You just get this huge bubble 
um, expansive and energy depleting, followed by collapse. It's self-limited. And so in America, they created the Glass-Steagall Act, which was legislative economic negative feedbacks. And this worked to keep the American economy um, lumbering along through all sorts of disturbances, World War II, the 1950s. It kept working until, you know, starting largely with Ronald Reagan, but then being continued by Democratic presidents as well. They started whittling away at these negative feedback loops until suddenly we have the recession in 2008. Of course, we're going to have that because we've eliminated the negative feedback loops and the positives now predominate. And so you're going to get a huge bubble and then a collapse. That was 2008. Mm -hmm. Dodd-Frank rules in America come into play. The the economy starts regulating itself in a healthy way. Um, Maybe people aren't getting incredibly crazily wealthy, but most people are doing just fine. And it's adaptive. It's responding to the changing environment. And then Trump era, we start to whittle away at those negative controls again. And suddenly, two months ago, you know, it was a gift to me in terms of writing an op-ed piece for the book. Um, We suddenly have, you know, another bubble and another collapse. So um, when you have corporations, because that's what you asked about, that don't have sufficient negative feedback, You know, if you have a corporation that really depends on driving competition between people, Hmm. for example, those are positive feedback loops pushing and pushing and pushing. It can work for a while, but it's going to collapse. You need um, a societal structure that allows for self-regulation so that no individual, no cluster of individuals outstrips the the healthy needs of, of the community. Okay. So that's number that's number that's two. Number two. Number three is all things are local um, and bottom up. Uh, so you know, like you said, starlings to get this vast remuneration are only paying attention to the seven starlings around them. Um, yep. Ants are only paying attention to the local pheromone scents and occasional. Let's talk about this one because Neil, yeah, I, I've known a little bit about ant colonies over my life, but when you described it. It just felt like, you know, it just clicked on my mind. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, of and course, this was what... Let, let's talk yeah. about it. Let, let, let's pretend sure. you're at a dinner party and you're someone says, oh, I'm into ant colonies. And then they went, hmm, mm. a little <laughs> bit kind of into ants. Okay. Well, everyone's kind of into ants. The, everyone's you know, kind of into the, it a little bit. Yeah. And th- there's no one who didn't grow up seeing ants and playing around with them. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. and, and so when I get to this moment in the talk, you can see the audience smile and, and relax because they're they're sort of I'm returning them just by mentioning ants. Yeah, people return to their childhood state of when they were down there playing with the ants. You know, because it's so, a good story. It's a, it's good, a good story. story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so an ant is wandering around randomly, um, yeah. and it leaves a scent trail behind it, so it can always find its way back to the colony. But right now it's just out here wandering and suddenly stumbles upon a sugar cube. Um, Ooh, sugar cubes, (laughs) grabs a piece of the sugar um, and then turns around and marches back to the colony along the route it got there. So it can find its way back to the colony. 
But does he change it, the level of pheromones being released at that well, point? Well, hold on, hold on. So, okay, so okay. he's he's <laughs> laying down one pheromone that is stable, and so it doesn't fade very quickly, and so he can find his way back to the colony. I'm sorry, I'm making it. Well, it is a male ant, so I can say his. Okay, so because <laughs> um, <laughs> that's who's doing this. Um, but then it starts laying down a different scent trail. Um, the pheromone it lays down is very strong, but degrades very quickly. And what that mm. means is that an ant who's wandering around randomly crosses this scent trail. Um, it knows that some ant has found some food. And if it turns in the direction of the fainter scent and walk that way, it will get to the sugar cube. So it starts laying down its scent trail so yeah. it can return. Um, gets the sugar cube, turns around, starts walking back to the colony, and it starts laying down its diminishing scent trail. So yeah. this is sort of a negative feedback kind of thing, mm -hmm. but it leads to a positive feedback loop because now you've got two scent trails. It's even stronger. Yeah. More ants are likely to cross it. More ants turn to the right, <laughs> in my yeah. vision, um, towards the sugar cube. Um, going down the scent gradient, get yeah. to the sugar cube, turn around, go back, more uh, pheromone trails, and now you've got a whole line. Just And yeah. no ant was thinking, how do we form a food line? No. The queen ant doesn't design this. She just forms, a, she just fulfills a, because um, that's the question I get. Well, doesn't the queen ant organize this? No, she just fulfills a reproductive function. It's all bottom up. The ants are just paying attention to the local pheromones and the physical sense of the sugar cube. And mm. that creates the food line, something yeah. from nothing. Now, when you look at, um, and this gets us actually to rule number three, <laughs> um, when you look at a line, you're standing and you see this food line, um, you look down, it looks like all the ants are following the line, and it's really dramatic. We all know what that looks like. Yeah. But if you kneel down and look closely, there's always a few ants that aren't following the line. And, um, you know, this was like the ant I would find in my mother's kitchen when I was a kid. This is yeah. my editor cut out virtually all my personal stories from the book, but left this one in. And <laughs> I, right, yeah, yeah. no, 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 it's not a memoir. I had to like get over that. And, um, <laughs> learning to write and what I want. And so, um, you know, I would get it on a piece of paper, you know, proto Buddhist. Um, this is when I'm like five, six years old and I would carry it outside back to the ants yeah. outside the back door, um, trying to save it. And I thought this was a stupid ant who had wandered too far from home. My mom knew exactly what this was. This was the random ant that wasn't following the food line and so would likely find the food source in her kitchen, lay down the scent trail, and begin the home invasion. So she thought, kill the ant and call the exterminator. And she was absolutely right if you want to keep your kitchen ant-free. Um, so... Um, how many ants aren't following the line? If you look, it's it's a few percent. If there's too much randomness in the system, you can't get food lines. You can't get any organization whatsoever. But too little randomness. If there were no other ants, then what are the ants going to do when the food source runs out? It's If you step your foot in the middle of a food line, 
It's the ants that are not part of the line that quickly establish the quickest route around your foot. When the food source runs out, it's these random ants, divergent ants, small numbers of them, that are likely already finding the next food source. So mm -hmm. the randomness is what allows the colony to explore alternate ways of organizing as the, as the environment changes. All the creative dynamism of life, of adaptation, um, comes from this low-level randomness. Stu Kaufman, who's one of the founders of complexity theory, um, uh, and actually I'm, I'm extraordinarily lucky, he's become a good friend, um, and he fact-checked the book for me <laughs> to make sure I wasn't doing anything, saying anything stupid. Um, he uh, refers to the possibilities that arise from this randomness in the current moment um, as the um, adjacent possibles. So in every moment, a living thing, because of this low-level randomness, has sort of a shimmering cloud of adjacent possibles around it one of which will be selected for the next moment of the colony. Hmm. Now, most of the time, these are adaptive. They aren't always. Inevitably, yeah. and I discussed the mathematics behind this in the book, inevitably, there will be mass extinction events. Um, they can be mitigated. They can sometimes be avoided through interventions. But given enough time, because the, the randomness that allows one to be alive and creative and adaptive necessarily will give rise eventually to a moment where everything collapses. And this has to do with the fractal mathematics at the edge of chaos, but yeah, that's enough. So, so, you, so you coming back to, wait, wait, so coming back to the, yeah. the corporation, if yeah. there's too rigid top-down control that it doesn't allow some degree of nonconformity, yeah, it'll work for a while. But, but it it's going to collapse. Yeah. Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was literally just about to say that. And I was like, okay, well, it, it is your book. Um, <laughs> and that is really, really important. That ran randomness, as you, you would call it, gives kind of fuel for life as well yeah, yeah, in, yeah. All, in all aspects of life, which is really, yeah. really important. So when you look at cultures, where there's such rigidity, like like societal cultures, um, what what do you say to those kind of cultures? Like, how can they release the randomness? Um, well, sometimes they don't, and then you have societal collapse. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, uh, one of the this idea that everything is local, you can have mm. systems that appear top down. You know, you take an autocratic society. Yeah. Um, take czarist Russia um, yeah. with the incredibly rigid control they had. And that was that worked for a time, you know, many lifetimes it worked. Yeah. But while they think, you know, an autocrat may think they are overseeing the entire thing in a hierarchical sort of way that they're at the top of a control pyramid that extends downward. The fact is, from a complexity point of view, there's no top, there's no bottom. They're part of a web. And mm -hmm. that autocrat may have more connections than anybody else, but it's never hunt may have more nodes in the society mm -hmm. that it connects to and is monitoring. But it's never complete. 
there's always going to be someone somewhere that divergent aunt who figures out hmm let's try marxism <laughs> and you know i mean marx i mean what what did marx have to do with uh czarist russia other than that was an example of the thing he was writing about but he's this jewish guy not in russia um yeah. who writes a book and somehow that book gets into the hands of Lenin. <laughs> yeah. I'm not exactly sure of the root of how all this happened. FedEx. Um, yeah. <laughs> and now I got it. And, uh, I'll never uh, get there. <laughs> yeah, never gets there. Um, but um, that was, that was, you know, and why yeah. did Marx write what Marx wrote? What was yeah. his upbringing? The, the people he met, the societal situations he stumbled into, which sparked his particular brain to say, to think in this way. Um, these are the kind of low-level, unpredictable things that happen all the time. The rigidity. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, there's, that's um, leads us on to number four then. So three is everything is local and four is the low-level random. Yeah, the low and these aren't really any real order. I mean, these are just yeah. four principles. I, these, I talk about them in this way. You're yeah. working towards. Yeah. So um, when we're when we're so looking that's at how, so I was going to say when I, when I want to analyze a social situation or I'm part of an organization where I have a say <laughs> how yeah. it might be behaving, um, I look for ways in which one of these four rules is out of kilter. Yeah. Are there insufficient negative feedback loops? Are there too many positive feedback loops? Do we need more members? Um, is there someone acting like they are in charge top down and squelching the bottom up creativity? Is there room for some randomness in the system? Not too much, but some. And uh, so like the banking system, it's really easy to look at the collapse of the banks and immediately know this is a problem with feedback loops. Um, cancer is a problem with feedback loops and all the new therapies are all about, um, repressing the positive feedbacks in cancer and restoring the negative feedback loops. That's exactly what's going on. Um, you know, if you, if you look at an authoritarian regime, how do we increase the randomness, um, to come out from under the control, the top-down control? Yeah. Um, edge it into the zone of creativity and and then the autocratic society will have a mass extinction event. <laughs> yeah. You know? But something new potentially can arise. A lot of the pieces here that we're we're speaking about so far to date um is a miss of consciousness. So we're 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 still to get to that point of consciousness. And then when you when you look at the definition of consciousness in the Oxford dictionary, it says a state of being aware of and responsive to one's surroundings. Um, how do you feel uh, the interconnectedness between consciousness and um, the the other four pieces? Well, what's the role there that you were talking about? Well, you know, we have, there are many sub varieties of philosophy that talk about what the nature of consciousness mm. is and how it arises. Um, the three major ones that I, I talk about in the book sort of cover all the things that people take seriously in mm. one form or another. The first is a materialist point of view. Um, and this, and I, I, when I first learned about complexity theory, I was all in for this, that 
emergent phenomena always seem like magic. How does the colony arise? Yeah. How does the murmuration arise? Um, it just does. So wouldn't it be easy to say that consciousness is the emergent phenomenon of all the cells of the brain and all the electrical signals of the brain that gives rise emergently to our minds? The problem is that we have this famous notion of the hard problem of consciousness, which is we can explain how the brain sees a rose, smells a rose, feels the prick of, of a thorn of the rose, but the experience of red, the experience of the scent, its sweetness, the experience of pain, no one knows how to explain that. Yeah. How that becomes an experience in your awareness. And the evidence that this is a problem is that when you talk to, when you read anything in cognitive neuroscience, which is the materialist domain that talks about this stuff, largely, they always, when they do an fMRI scan and they see activation of a pattern of regions of the brain, they say, this is a uh, neural correlate of consciousness. When mm. you experience a visual cue, the brain lights up in this way. They are correlated with each other, but they can't ever say it's causal. No one has ever okay. found anything in the brain that if you, the brain reacts this way, awareness pops up. No one's been able to do that. So that's the hard problem of consciousness. And so the materialist view sort of falls on, on that sword in many people's view, my view. Um, certainly. Although I was there at the beginning, I thought, oh, this will be easy. The result is in the last five, 10 years, people have started moving to what's called a panpsychist point of view, which is that consciousness is present in lower scale things and they assemble into bigger consciousness. So cells have consciousness, just not as complex as a human's consciousness. Hmm. And And then there are people who say, well, there may be quantum carriers of consciousness, the way there are quantum carriers of electromagnetism, photons, and quantum carriers of the strong force and weak force. Maybe there are quantum carriers, particles of some kind that carry consciousness. But this doesn't get rid of the hard problem. It just shifts yeah. it down lower in scale. The third possibility, and, but, and there you have the idea that, oh, are these mini consciousnesses, that's a hard word, um, yeah. mini, con mini minds, um, how do they self-assemble as a complex system into a larger scale consciousness? Yeah. So complexity theory, again, comes in usefully here, but it doesn't get at the hard problem. The final one, um, which is what the last half of the book is about, is, mm. well, what if consciousness comes first? And the scientific opening for that is quantum mechanics. Um, in response to the double slit experiment, where we know that if you look at a beam of light um, going through slits in um, a screen, if you look at it, the light behaves like particles and you get one result. If you don't look at it, it behaves like waves and you get a different result. A conscious observer is what defines the nature of reality in the present moment. And this is a tremendously deep concept, and it led Max Planck, the father of quantum physics, to say, you cannot get behind consciousness. What he means is, 
consciousness has to come first in a quantum universe. And what I do with complexity theory, the first half of the book, is show that um, just as you have this quantum level complementarity uh, is light waves or particles or any other sort of thing you pair off in, in the quantum scale, complexity shows that that kind of complementarity is throughout the universe, that all living systems are flush with complementarities. Um, the example I use in the book is you have um, uh, that classic image of two silhouette profiles looking at each other, two faces looking at each other. Um, but the space between the faces looks like a vase. Is it two faces or a vase? You can sort of really only see one or the other, but you know a complete mm -hmm. description requires both. Um, yeah. What complexity shows is an ant colony looks like a solid thing from a distance, but when you go in close, it's not a thing at all. It's a phenomenon arising from smaller things, the interacting ants. As a pathologist, if I take an ant and put it down on a microscope slide to the cellular level, the ant body disappears as a thing. My body disappears as a thing. All of ours do. Um, and it's just cells interacting. Well, are cells a definitive object? You know, real in itself? No, they're just self-organizing molecules of floating, floating in water, et cetera, et cetera, down to the quantum realm. So there is no thingness. There's no materiality when you take quantum theory and complexity and put them together, mm -hmm. all of this becomes this evanescent kind of thing and leads one towards an idealist perspective, which is that consciousness comes first. So when we talk about consciousness, how do we, can, can that be measured is what I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand, like, how do we know if it's present? Because well, we're, we're talking about theory here. Right. Um, and the moment you say measurement, how do we measure it? You're sort of... How do we know it's how, present? Right. You're, you're sort of... You want to hear a statement from me that um, is our predominant cultural view, which is that you can get that answer either scientifically mm. or through ma formal mathematics. And what we already know from quantum mechanics is you can't get there from empirical science. The moment you try to do it, you change the system. Empirical okay. science, as we conceive it, requires you to separate subject and object. But once you get to consciousness, there's no separation of subject and object. So it's not amenable to scientific description. Okay. Um, the mathematics, and this is chapters... Nine and, ten, Nine and ten, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we thought that mathematics could do it, that you could have a fully developed mathematical system that could describe all existence and contain all possible mathematics in a consistent um, and complete way. But then we get this remarkable fellow named Kurt Gödel, who, who also, I don't think, has enough um, presence in the cultural mind. Um, most famously, he was part of the book Gödel Escherbach, The Eternal Golden Braid, back in the 1970s, which was a book about consciousness, trying to get complexity to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, it failed. But, but Gödel was part of the answer. 
And what Gödel showed is that there are always going to be mathematical truths about the universe that are true but cannot be proven to be true. And so mathematics also cannot fully explain everything. And he himself said that what he means by intuition is probably what applies to metaphysics derived from spiritual practice such as meditation, where okay. the mind is looking inward to explore the nature of mind. But if it's your mind exploring your mind, there's no subject-object split. There can't be, right? So yeah. how do we measure this? We can only report it. And what Gödel and quantum mechanics do for us is say that necessarily intuition has to come back. Metaphysics has to come back. These things can't be proven, but they can be experienced. Mm. And that's what the book ultimately points to, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. I see like a lot, a lot of the um, organizational benefits would be um, discussing and evaluating and looking at ant colonies' behaviors and you know the principles behind those pieces. And then it kind of goes into that world of kind of people talk about consciousness and it's, it's interpretive to a point. So is this one of the reasons why you think, or maybe you don't think, um, it is harder for people to grasp? Because when, when I look at ant colonies and people can, you know, walk away from the conversation and kind of go, yeah, I get that. Okay. I can sort of some, see some parallels between human life and uh, ant colonies and how they self-organize and stuff. Um, but the bit that I kind of struggle with is um, the connection between humans and consciousness and ants mm -hmm. and consciousness. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you believe uh, every living being has a consciousness? I believe everything is consciousness. The universe is the contents of the awareness of the universe. What underlies the universe is pure awareness in which there is no subject-object split. It is just pure awareness of being aware. And people can experience this. I mean, it can be directly mm. experienced. Um, and I discuss how it is experienced and described in some different traditions. You can but the thing is, it is beyond description. But how that gives rise to the world of duality, as we call it, where there yeah. is subject-object split, um, that can be described. And um, I'm part of uh, working with Minas Kafatos, for example, who's my collaborator in all the consciousness stuff. He's a quantum physicist, a, a cosmologist, and a Kashmiri Shaivist, and now a Buddhist. Um, uh, working with him and some other colleagues, particularly Goro Kato, who's a mathematician, we are creating mathematical theories that describe this. And hopefully these mathematical theories will yield predictions that we can then evaluate. But the base is that, um, you know, the way a dream is the contents of your awareness, the way my voice in your ear is a is one of the contents of your awareness at this moment. The universe is the contents of the universal awareness. So okay. it's not about our ants conscious. Everything is made of pure awareness. Everything is non-material. Yeah. Everything is interwoven and interlinked and completely um, seamless. There is no separation. These are just delusions. 
but again, these are, you know, f- philosophical ideas like this yeah. are good for, for, for stoner for conversations, but, um, but how do you experience this? As I'm, truth? Not stoned, this no. I'm not stoned. <laughs> no, no. But if we were, we'd, you know, <laughs> it'd <laughs> know be even more it. fun. Um, yeah. uh, there are ways to experience this and, um, and why wouldn't we avail ourselves at least to try it? Our culture says, no, metaphysics is not allowed. And this mm-hmm. largely comes from a group of, of uh, intellectuals uh, from Vienna in the turn of the, uh, between the world wars, Gödel was part of this circle and then blew all their ideas to hell, um, uh, to their dismay. And yet, partly because, I, I go into the history in the book because it's kind of fascinating, the Vienna Circle, as they were called, were really aggressive about getting their ideas out there philosophically into the world. Hmm. But then Hitler invaded Austria, and many of them were Jews. Even those who weren't Jews, people thought they were Jews, and they fled all around the world. And so they took up lodgings at Cambridge, at Oxford, at USC, at Harvard. Hmm. And so we live in a world defined by the philosophy of the Vienna circle, even though the Vienna circle philosophy completely fails. Yeah. So your questions are, well, mathematically and scientifically, how do we define it? Wrong question. But the question is what we all ask, because this is how our culture views things. Yeah. So uh, my hope when you learn about complexity theory, um, I can't prove that the idealist perspective is correct, although I certainly think so. But what I hope is to pull people forward from this adherence, this immersion in a materialist view that we just sort of imbibe from childhood automatically and Mm. go, oh, there are other possibilities here. And the world is more exciting than this allows it to be. The world is not a machine. It's not to be picked apart and figure out what the pieces are and then everything's predictable. It never will be that because things are alive and there's randomness, yeah. unpredictability. There's a, there was a part of the book that um, I read and I, I had to read it five or six times because as I was saying to you beforehand, I'd say I've picked this book up over a hundred times and I pick it up and I read a couple of pages, I get dizzy and then I put it down again. And then I'm like, I'll go for a walk and I'll, I'll ponder what you've said. Like it, it is literally one of those books, folks. But I'm going to read this piece out, okay? Um, it says, in complexity, however, while we can predict the emergence will occur, its precise nature can never be predicted, even if we begin with the same starting conditions. In complexity, the whole is unpredictably greater than the sum of its parts, kind of like the world kind of like our lives. So when I when I read that, when we look at our roles as change makers in the world, because most people who I have on the podcast, nearly everyone, um, we want to create a better world. We want to create a better understanding. Um, we're working to improve culture and human behavior and systems, moving away from toxicity and poor decision making, whatever it is we're trying to do. How should we interpret that last paragraph that I just read? Um, should I read it with optimism or should I read it with somewhat kind of um, frustration 
Um, and I'd like yeah. to probably wrap it up at this point because this is a, this is a please tell me it's going to be an optimistic ending. Please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it's an optimistic ending like being a physician. Okay, that's not an optimistic. You don't expect to keep, <laughs> you don't expect to keep your patient alive forever. But you can extend their life. You okay. can improve the quality of their life. You can rescue them from mass extinction events. Um, I like that. But but no one lives forever. Mm. So you're looking to be a physician for society. You can't perfect yeah. it no more than your doctor can perfect your, your living being. But mm. you can do a lot between here and then. And you can recognize that whatever you accomplish is part of the larger whole in ways you can't possibly imagine or predict that will play themselves out over generations and generations and generations in ways you can't even imagine. So um, there's an acceptance yeah. of what's in front of me? What's the problem in front of me? What can I do? The rules for analysis are helpful in that regard. So, and I use them as I said, often myself to analyze either social situations or my own situations. Um, and so everything's local. What's in front of you? What can you do about that? And then trust that in the larger scheme of things, if everybody did that, then yeah. we'd have a more resilient world. And what you're, after, what you're after isn't perfection. You're after resilience and creativity. Yeah. How's that? Neil, that is a fantastic way to, to wrap up this conversation. As, as we spoke before, um, you know, I'd love to have you back on, um, as, as this kind of unfolds itself. I know you're on a book tour at the moment. The book isn't out at the moment and a huge thanks to, to Nora, um, for sending me across an advanced copy of, uh, notes and complexity. You can pre-order it though, I believe. Um, yes, you can. Uh, uh, um, indie bookstores and, uh, and Amazon, of course. Um, yeah, Indy's I think good. Jeff, Jeff texts me, he said he's rich enough at the moment. Um, so the indie bookstores are probably a preferred way to buy the book. Um, if, if we can ever, uh, send some money to the indie bookstores, we always try and recommend that. Exactly. And it's already arrived. It's, I, it, it showed up on a bookshelf. I mean, in a bookstore in New I York, I actually went Instagram. to go and I looked at it and someone else the same day said it arrived to them in Sweden. I don't know who they ordered it from. Yeah. So it's already starting to get out there, but the official launch is May 9th. Yeah. So here's my copy of it here, folks. It, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite Wilco albums. I don't know if you know the band Wilco. Do you know? No. There's a great band from Chicago called Wilco, um, Sky Blue Sky, the the album cover from that from 2015's album, 2016 maybe. There's a very they have a they have a bunch of starlings in the front of their, <laughs> their book. But, I'll go. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful. Once I saw that cover, I was like, starlings. I'm reading. This is it. This is this is my book. And I've told everyone, like you know, anyone who's going to see me at UX Scotland doing the keynote. Um, I'll be get, giving this a big shout out and I'll be talking and referencing large parts of this conversation, Neil, because what you've done there and a bulk of work is, is hugely powerful and highly recommended to anyone listening to the podcast. So I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. Neil, if people Thank want to reach so out much. to you. And, yeah, absolutely. If they want to reach out to you and get in touch and, you know, learn more about your work, what's the best way for people to do that? 
We're developing a website called neilthiesofficial.com. I once had a neilthies.com, but I was so bad about keeping it organized, I lost control of the domain. <laughs> so now, because I just, this isn't what I do. Um, <laughs> but now I have a team. Um, so we're developing neilthiesofficial.com. I saw that. Stuff will be posted there. Yeah. And that. I'm also Facebook and Instagram are, are, you know, I'm old. So those are things I can handle. TikTok, not so much. Yeah, well, it's 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 been absolutely brilliant to to uh, to chat with you today. I'll put a link to your new website um, up there as well in the show notes as well for people to click on, and also your Instagram as well because it's it's good to put a face to the name and the voice as well. So Neil, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. It's been absolutely mind blowing, um, and I really appreciate you giving me uh, all your time this morning. Um, so oh, my so pleasure, Jerry. Thanks for for having me. there you go folks i hope you enjoyed that episode and if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there thanks again for listening